0: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
3: All right.
4: Yeah, no, no. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of
2: shows includes
0: American Biography The Bohemian Podcast How Jamaica Conquered the World The History of the Papacy The History of England The History of Alchemy
4: Podcast Mid-Atlantic When Diplomacy Fails 1001 Conversations
5: History of Anglo-Saxon England the secret cabinet from Germany. Ten American presidents. The History of Germany podcast.
4: The Agora Podcast Network.com.
6: Listen to Agora today.
5: Um, my name is Kate.
2: My name's Joe. My name's Nicola.
6: My name is Suzanne Hakimi.
2: My name is Mary Parkinson.
7: I'm in Hope House as a client. Um, I... Have had addiction issues Um, throughout
2: my life, um, including an eating disorder, heroin, crack, addiction, addiction, drugs. methadone, alcohol. I'm here because it got really bad. At long last, a thousand and one conversations is available to download from iTunes and all good podcatchers.
4: This was a place where women worked
2: to help other women.
7: It's the story of a cultural superpower that danced and sprinted its way to success. It brought the world reggae, Colin Powell, rasters, Hip Hop, pop Marley, and much more. Its story is told to you in full colour for your podcasting ears. It's the story of how Jamaica conquered the world. Search for it on iTunes. How Jamaica conquered the world. It's probably the best, least known podcast in podcast, Search for it today.
0: Mr. Pop...
3: And the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four
6: score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events.
3: And so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States
2: of America.
4: Hello and welcome to episode 6 of 10 American Presidents. In this show, I'm joined by author and historian David Petrusha, who massively narrated the life of FDR for us last episode. Say hello, David. Hello. How are you? Do you have a good Good Christmas? Christmas.
6: Uh, Yes, a very good Christmas and a good New Year's, uh, traveling all about the North American continent, or at least the northeastern part of America.
4: Uh, What did Santa get you? What did he get me? Good Lord. Um, any weighty historical tomes?
6: <laughs> no, but I bought a book just the other day mm-hmm. in New York City, which was an oral history of, 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 of Manhattan from the 1890s to the 1940s. So you actually were able to read someone who had met Teddy Roosevelt in, like, 1893. Oh, wow. Or a survivor of the Triangle shirtwaist fire. And I was reading that on the train last night. Uh, that's really
4: interesting because um, something which I've never disclosed to any of the listeners I'm a bit of an urbanist, I'm absolutely fascinated by cities and I'm currently working on a new podcast with the new statesman called City Metric which is all about cities and how they work. So I'm absolutely fascinated by the history of New York and Manhattan and, uh, so you, you'll have to give me a read of that.
6: I will uh, it's, it's called You Must Remember This that's the Uh name of the book it's a big it was a big book to carry back (laughs) (laughs) but I found it in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn for Mm -hmm. four bucks and it was a great find
4: Well, um, as we say in Britain, I'll have uh, Bagsy on that uh, afterwards, after you've read it. But uh, this is not a show to be talking about the history of New York per se. This is our question and answer show where you, the listener, can pose questions or have posed questions to our expert to clear up any questions that you might have had after listening to the last show. Uh, But David, first, the first question comes from me um, over in uh, a chilly Toronto. Um, When
6: and how did your interest in history first start. It started when I was a little kid and I was fascinated by the presidents and so I memorized them in order and all the things about them and at that point there were certainly fewer of them to memorize <laughs> uh, but I, I, I carried it off at a very tender age uh, so much so that an uncle of mine Uh, built a little replica of the uh, White House for me (laughs) to uh, keep little statuettes of all the presidents. So instead of toy soldiers, I had toy presidents. And uh, another uh, relative gave me an illustrated history of the presidents. And so I was just off and running from, from then on. And, you know, the people would say, Oh, little David, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, a fireman, a policeman, a cowboy... And I'd say a historian. Oh, and, wow. And it took me a while to get there, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually I did.
4: You, you sound somewhat like a bit of a strange young boy, right, David? But, but, <laughs> but, OK, which of those little President figurines was the most handsome?
6: The most handsome? Mm. Boy, I think, uh, you know, Franklin Pierce was known as, as Handsome Frank. Uh as opposed to handsome Frank Roosevelt who also a handsome fellow Um, but uh, you know they're they're all interesting in in their little costumes the uh, the beginning of the revolutionary era up to Monroe, and I always fancy the little straw hat that the mm-hmm. Calvin Coolidge had in his hand, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they're all all interesting in in their own way, and interesting in say their girth of the uh, girth era of uh, McKinley mm-hmm. and uh, Taft and McKinley. It's like boy, those guys are big, and even <laughs> T. R. for that matter.
4: Mm. So talking about TR, what is it about the progressive era? And let's say FDR, if we're coming back onto the show that we did together, that so fascinates you because you've written uh, ostensibly a lot of your writing is about those eras, isn't
6: it? Yeah, more. I've always fancied myself as a 1920s person uh, of, of interest and historically. But lately, it's occurred to me that also I've been very much interest, interested in the teens, mm-hmm. um, and they're very different eras. The teens are almost like late Victorian. If you take a look at at how things appear in terms of culture or fashions or style, there's a there's a tectonic shift that occurs in the early 1920s. But you know, this is America where it's taking off, and and. And everything is just bursting with energy and excitement. And both halves of that, of the progressive era and the reaction to it, which occurs in the 1920s, just fascinate the hell out of me. Not only politically, but but culturally.
4: It's kind of interesting being being British um, and kind of being aware of American history, Uh, But, you know, not necessarily all of the detail. I wasn't even really aware that colloquially that era is called the the Progressive Era. So I wasn't really aware that the era was actually called the Progressive Era. But if somebody wants to neatly chronologically tie that era, when does a Progressive Era
6: start and end in your perspective? Neatly from around the late, very late 1890s to... 1920 it all sort of crashes with the end of the wilson administration but the progressive era reforms stop right around 1916 there's a flurry of activity in a congressional session that year but you have the emphasis on reform there are reforms like the federal reserve act and uh um, Labor legislation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but it's an emphasis on electoral reform, battling the big city machines, primary legislations, uh, changing the method of election of United States senators from the state legislatures to the popular vote uh, initiative referendum, mm-hmm. uh, a clean government thing, not. And then, but it's coincidental with the populist era where William Jennings Bryan gets up and running slightly before that in 1896 when he's running against McKinley. That's a more rural, economic, anti-Wall Street sort of uh, peasants with pitchforks uh, matter of politics. But, But they share... If not styles or geography, they do share certain interests in, in taking down the, the big guys of, of, of Wall Street. And you see with TR in that 1912 campaign, his third party run, uh, where, where he is against the accumulated power of big business, Wall Street monopolies, however you want to call it. Let me
3: assert my firm belief. ...that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore
0: America.
4: So our first question is from listener Adam Venami, who's from Denver, Colorado.
0: My question is about the relationship between Stalin and FDR. In the podcast, you insinuate that Churchill really saw Stalin for what he was. And I'm wondering if you thought FDR kind of had his blinders on when he was dealing with Stalin and really didn't
6: understand what he was going to become the same way that Churchill did. The difference between Churchill and Roosevelt in regards to Stalin really should be preceded by the question of Churchill versus Roosevelt in regards to their attitudes toward communism, Bolshevism, whatever. Churchill is a very avid anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik from the get-go, from 1917. So his attitude towards Stalin is going to be colored by that. Roosevelt is not really an anti-communist at, at really any point. Um, he is His administration, one of the first things he does is to recognize the Soviet Union. Uh, neither Hoover, nor Coolidge, nor Harding, nor Woodrow Wilson had done that. And then you see his attitude, Franklin Roosevelt's attitude towards domestic communists, uh, there's a famous uh, situation where he's talking to Martin Dyes one of the early heads of the House Un-American Activities Committee where he supposedly tells Dyes some of my best friends are communists so he thinks he can he can work with these, these fellows uh, and, and he thinks he can probably charm just about anybody he's also anti-colonialist so he will uh distance himself at the summits between Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin uh, against uh, Churchill and the British Empire. And he, he really believes that he can work with Stalin and create a better world. Now, one of the things that is a carryover from Franklin Roosevelt to Wilsonianism is Wilson has his League of Nations and Franklin Roosevelt has his United Nations, and to get Stalin and the Soviet Union into this new United Nations, he's willing to make concessions. Just as Woodrow Wilson was willing to make concessions at Versailles on point after point to get his League of Nations, Roosevelt is willing to concede to Stalin who he, who he thinks is some sort of a Democrat and, and, and you know, a, a progressive in his own right um, to get Stalin and the Soviet Union into the, into the League of Nations and also to coordinate Stalin's offensives with the invasion of France. Now, that's sort of ironic because Stalin has been pushing for the invasion of of Normandy for this second front anyway, so he should be on board uh, with that. And Roosevelt also wants Stalin to come in against the war in Japan once the Nazis are, are knocked out. So there's all these reasons why he's playing up to Stalin. Towards the end of his life, I think he catches on. Uh, a bit more to the danger of Stalin and what a double crosser and what an aggressive fellow he's going to be in the post-war era, but it comes very late, and we we get into the question of what would he have done later, which is always that what-if sort of history, which I'm I'm kind of uncomfortable with because um, when I was associated with baseball history and I was, people would ask me who's going to win the World Series. And I would say to them, uh, I'm a historian, not a prophet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there's, there's, I think we're going to be getting a bunch of questions like what would have happened if, Mm -hmm. and those questions are always difficult to answer. I'll try to give them my best shot, but what Stalin and Roosevelt would have come to had Roosevelt lived is of course in the, in the realm of something beyond history. Okay. So, um, You can tell you've done this
4: broadcast, podcast stuff before because you're foreshadowing future questions.
6: 1914, June, Sarajevo. The heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Assassinated, killed by a Serbian nationalist. About six weeks later, world war breaks out. Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, France, France, Britain. Everyone is drawn into it starting in August, and then will America be drawn in? Uh, so we have a
4: question from, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of your name, so I do apologize, but uh, I'm not up on my Latvian uh, but Kristaps Andresens I think who does a very good podcast called The Eastern Border which looks at Eastern Europe's relationship to Russia and the Soviet Union so uh, his question comes all the way from Riga um, in Latvia and he says this is a very painful question to me, at least. It's about the Baltic states and the annexation by the USSR in World War II. Over here, many believe that FDR was weak compared to Stalin, and that he was completely overwhelmed and outmaneuvered by him during the peace talks. In some part, people here believe that FDR is also, at least partly, responsible for the occupation and the Sovietization of Eastern European countries because he didn't even try to oppose Stalin when it came to these countries being part of the USSR. Many people here were hoping that the USA would go to war to free Eastern European countries from the USSR, still way late into the 1950s but that never happened and FDR's policies have largely contributed to the fact that even now we're wary about NATO and American guarantees towards our country. So I'd like to know more about FDR's attitude towards Stalin and whether there were any sources that mentioned what FDR thought about the Baltic states.
6: In terms of the Baltic states, I'm not sure about that specifically, but to back it up for our listeners, uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania were part of the deal of the Hitler-Stalin Pact. When Hitler moves into western Poland, Stalin moves into eastern Poland, seizes that in 1939, and then follows that up with the annexation of these three small Baltic nations and an invasion of Finland. So, Russia and Germany are allies. Um, Stalin uh, gets lucky in that Britain and France never go to war against him. I mean, logically, if the issue is the invasion of Poland and France and Britain are going to declare war on Germany, they should have also declared war on Russia, but they don't. They don't bite off more than they can chew on that. And if you're going to undo what the initial impetus for war was, you should restore an independent Poland with its borders, which we do not. Well, you should restore the Baltic states, which we do not. One of the things which um, Franklin Roosevelt and the Allies could have done, and which Churchill was more interested in doing, was to strike more at the Nazis, say, through the southern European theater and through Italy and forestall how far Stalin could come westward into Europe, either in the Baltics or more in the central, central part of Europe, say through Austria or Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia. The Baltic states were probably too far gone for us to forestall a Soviet occupation of those countries and how you would dislodge them with this massive red army which was much larger than the force numerically than the forces which uh, Britain and the United States and its various allies had in the western part of Europe but you know The success of the Red Army is in many ways predicated on Roosevelt's Lend-Lease aid, whether it's tanks or foodstuffs or any sort of materiel.
4: David, I'm going to quickly jump in, uh, because one of the things I found really fascinating about working with you on the FDR show was the the subtle slant from a british perspective anyway of uh, the war i e you know the war doesn't start till 1941 is the most obvious thing where us Brits have been fighting for uh two years previous and of course if i was chinese i'd probably be saying it started in um, in you know in the in the mid 1930s so oh early Earl, you yeah, know manchuria yeah, manchuria in 1932 yeah exactly exactly now if i was russian i would probably not even mention uh, lend lease from from fdr as being a contributing factor as to why the soviet armies repelled the nazis in the end so from a you know without digging deeply into the weeds here how much did that specifically really help the soviet war effort because from a soviet perspective it's a case of well we moved our factories back behind the Urals. rules we had this capacity we we rallied everybody to the to the fatherland and etc and it was and we did this by ourselves and you know the folk in the west were just um you know, at best it was some rearguard action, but we really took the fight to the Nazis. And that, and that is definitely a Russian-Soviet perspective on it, isn't it?
6: Well, in terms of, of blood and manpower, it's uh, the Soviet contribution is the biggest. Yeah, overwhelmingly Wait, so. But when, you're, when you've had your territory occupied uh, to the borders of Moscow and Leningrad, uh, and to Stalingrad, beautiful downtown Stalingrad, but you've lost a lot. You know, you you might be able to move factories back, but you can't move them all. You can't move your Ukrainian breadbasket, you know, to Siberia. Hmm. So a lot of stuff is is they make up the slack with with American materiel. When Vice President Wallace. Henry Wallace visits Siberia during the war. Uh, he, he just is amazed at how much he sees uh, um, in, in Siberia and in the hinterlands, all marked made in USA. Um, so it's, it's, it's a balancing thing, but we could have probably cut off some of that aid as a, as a leverage point as things progressed in 44, 45, when things get dicey between the United States and um, the Soviets. But Roosevelt is not seeing that until very late, even after. Now, the fate of the Baltic nations is tied in with the fate of Poland. And the fate of Poland is tied into the 1944 election, where Polish Americans are getting wary about what's going to happen to their country in the post war and will they turn on Roosevelt and Roosevelt has to court Polish Americans. There's some polling data, which indicates that a bunch of them, which, which the Polish vote was historically very, very strongly, uh, democratic as, as democratic as the Jewish American vote or as democratic as the black American vote is, is it becomes during Roosevelt and if they jump ship they could help switch that election in 1944 so roosevelt has to court them his situation is not helped by the fact that when polish uh, uh home army units revolt in moscow or in warsaw at the instigation of the soviet union and then are hung out to dry they are set up to die in this Warsaw Rebellion by the Soviets and when the Americans and the British want to get uh, supplies to their Polish allies in Warsaw, Stalin says, no, you can't land your planes here in uh, our our air bases, which are closer. We will not help these people. And that should be a wake-up call as to what Stalin is really about. But FDR is not particularly interested in this he expresses some frustration uh about eastern europeans eastern european borders he just doesn't seem to care Hmm. let's go
4: on we have a question from brett von Slosser. i'm going to say that again brett von Slosser. I've always been curious about the whole initial thing. We've had related presidents in the past. There's two Presidents Adams, the two President Harrisons with no major name modifications. But the changes with Roosevelt, Teddy is President Roosevelt, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt is also FDR. Why? When Kennedy comes along... Is, was he trying to emulate FDR by going for JFK? After that, it seems like a similar thing repeats itself with the Bushes in a way. George H. W. Bush is President Bush. George W. Bush is always referred to simply as W. So what is this naming convention?
6: Well, TR starts it off. I mean, it's not just Teddy Roosevelt. It's He's, he's the first initial FDR maybe emulating TR. He certainly tried to emulate him in in many a way stylistically early in his campaign. So T.R. Begats, F.D.R., J.F.K., uh, John F. Kennedy. I'm not quite sure what was the impetus for that because the relationship between the Kennedy family and uh, Franklin Roosevelt certainly was up and down. Joe Kennedy, Jack Kennedy's father, is an ally of Franklin Roosevelt at first. And then they they split on the issue of the war and isolationism. But the the guy that was not mentioned in that question, who has the closest relationship to Franklin Roosevelt, and is another initial guy, is LBJ. Of course, yes. LBJ uh, regarded Franklin Roosevelt as one of his daddies. You know, anyone who was like a protege or or a mentor of LBJ was 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 uh, uh, one of his daddies. And he thought of himself and thought of himself as the I think thought of the great society as the New Deal 2.0. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted that to be his legacy, and but he gets caught up in a war like Franklin Roosevelt does, and it doesn't turn out as well. It turns out sort of like uh, a Woodrow Wilson sort of war, except, uh, except we don't win that war. Now, with the Bushes, that's kind of interesting because we don't get into, uh, you know, we've got the first name thing being the same, like the Adamses, like John Adamses and John Quincy Adams' Adams but um, you know, we didn't call John Quincy Adams Q <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but but once we're into the initial thing and 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 not only initials but think of acronyms think of, of how things are shortened words now, which 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 goes on all the time where we've had linguistic differences where, who in the nineteenth century century would have called vegetables veggies? Okay, uh-huh. and and then we create all these words now. Look at all the hashtag type words or or this this combination of words where there's there's like a whole new language evolving now. Part of it is because of technology, but we are really playing around with our language and and just combining words and breaking them apart. And having all these, these initials and shortcuts, where we, we never had it before. Where the technology is evolving, but also so is our linguistics. It's the roaring 20s. Life is good. One year, unemployment gets down to 1%. There's virtually no inflation in the country, maybe 2%. Tops any given year. The gross national product is growing by leaps and bounds. Taxes or tax rates are coming down. Life is good for America. And so Alfred E. Smith loses to Herbert Hoover that year. But while he's losing, Franklin D. Roosevelt wins by an eyelash. He's governor of the state of New York, the most populous. Prosperous and rich and influential state in the Union, and suddenly a front runner for the presidency of the United States of America.
4: Going back to World War II, we have a question from Stephen Guerra, who runs the excellent History of the Papacy podcast.
1: Hi David and Royfield. I really enjoyed your episode on FDR. I had another question and it was whether given that the Nazi Germany went and declared war almost immediately after Japan attacked the United States, did Roosevelt and his administration have a plan like a plan B just in case Germany didn't declare war on the United States? What was going to be the plan had Germany not declared war? What would have the situation been with the war in Europe?
6: Thanks again. Well, that's one of those what-if questions, always fascinating, uh, but highly speculative. We are already in an undeclared naval war with Nazi Germany in the North Atlantic. That would have accelerated. Uh, Perhaps there would have been some greater incident that would have caused us to go to a full-blown war with Nazi Germany. But with the American people all rightfully head up against Japan, it would have been very difficult in the absence of a declared war to keep um, diverting or to divert our resources uh, to Europe uh, as opposed to fighting the war against the Japanese who had attacked us directly and who the Americans for one reason or another, we're very, very much opposed to. So I, if Hitler does not take that move, and he does not have to, the Nazis and the Japanese and the Italians are all involved in the tripartite pact, the Axis. It's it's an alliance, but it is a defensive alliance. This explains, you know, unless Nazi Germany is attacked or unless Japan is attacked, the others do not have to go to their aid. If they launch an aggressive war, say, with Germany versus the Soviet Union, then Japan doesn't have to come in and Japan doesn't have to go uh, to war against the Soviet Union. But Hitler goes completely haywire uh, in December 1941 and causes that attack so what happens if he doesn't it really forestalls Normandy the invasion of Italy uh, the invasion of North Africa leading uh, the British to do it on their own and what probably would have happened then is that the Soviet Union ends up ...with even more of post-war Europe than it does uh, after 1945. 1933, Franklin Roosevelt is about to be president... ...but he might never really get there... ...even though he's won a landslide victory... ...because he takes a fishing trip on a yacht off the coast of Florida and stops in Miami for another campaign address, even though the campaign is won. And as he sits in his car, an Italian immigrant, Giuseppe Zangara, pulls out a revolver and fires once, twice, again and again and again. Franklin Roosevelt could have died that day. Instead, a bullet hits the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak. Anton Cermak says, I'm glad it was me and not you.
3: When the first shot was fired, I realized he was shooting at someone, and I I taken my right arm and pushed the pistol up just as hard as I
2: could. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job
6: sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Franklin Roosevelt will go on to become president. Craig Beck in Sydney,
4: Australia, a history teacher hey guys through my own studies i've learned that fdr learned much from watching woodrow wilson what do you think is one of the major foreign policy lessons that he actually learned from woodrow wilson in office and how do you think this affected the way he handled america's entry into world war ii
6: roosevelt of course is is handed this great entree into the war, a great but terrible entree with Pearl Harbor, where there is no choice about America coming in. Um, Wilson is a very stubborn individual. Roosevelt, as we mentioned earlier, does not learn from Wilson's experience with the League of Nations and having to make so many concessions to his allies in order to get it through he's making concessions to Stalin in order to get the League of Nations through but what he does learn is he needs to cooperate more so with the Republicans and with domestic uh, opinion than Wilson ever learns and this is something this is something from my previous book 1920 the Year of the Six Presidents And it's a letter which Franklin Roosevelt writes to Eleanor about Wilson's failure to bring the Republicans and the Congress into the game about treaty making. And he writes, The business of the president and the secretary of state negotiating and signing a treaty and then handing it cold to the Senate is all wrong. If I were doing it, I'd take the Senate and maybe the House into my confidence as far as I could. I'd get them committed to a principle and then work out the details in negotiations. In that way, the thing could be secured. So I think he, he, he's going to work with the Congress more, work with the Republicans more, you know, even at the beginning of his administration, He does something which uh, Wilson has no interest in. Wilson has no interest in bringing Republicans into his administration, just has no use for it. But what does Roosevelt do? He brings in guys like Harold Ickes and Henry Wallace, and I think even Wooden, the Secretary of the Treasury, is a Republican. So he's attempting to bring in a nonpartisan coalition of progressives into his administration very early on. And then when the war comes in, he's working with Frank Knox, the 1936 vice presidential candidate for the Republicans, Henry Stimson, an old war horse from the Taft administration. And he even brings in his 1940 presidential rival, uh, Wendell Wilkie, to serve as his personal ambassador to the British and to develop support for the war, the upcoming war effort.
4: From Hannibal, Missouri, we have a question from
6: David P. Hazen. I've always wondered
4: that given FDR's close study of Wilson and his recent experience of digging the economy out of the depression and the mini depression of the late 1930s, what considerations did FDR have for a post-war economic
6: contraction like the one that followed World War I? There's a there's a tremendous mobilization of the American economy in both world wars. Um, in World War One, uh, the railroads are taken over by uh, the Woodrow Wilson administration, and the amazing level of control that occurs should not be underestimated uh, by any level, because it comes out of an almost vacuum of federal power uh, over the economy. So the ramping up is far more startling under Wilson and the war than it is under FDR and the New Deal or his war effort. And Roosevelt, you see uh, the author Jonah Goldberg makes the point over and over again in, in his book, Liberal Fascism, how um, the impetus for the New Deal or for liberal economic programs is a mobilization akin to war, uh, Mm. control over the economy very much like a wartime effort, like a wartime crusade. So Roosevelt will do that. And in his 1933 inaugural address talks about having the powers akin to a wartime leader. And so you've got the, again, a ramping up of government control of the economy massively in World War II, how Roosevelt would have dealt with the post-war economy and the downturn, I would guess that he would see this as a wonderful opportunity, much as Rahm Emanuel would talk about, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste. So you could have a second new deal come in to send people to CCC camps or WAPA contract uh, works uh, projects to deal with the 11 million people coming out of the service who it would be assumed would be unemployed where the economy would not be able to turn around and go back from making tanks to making you know uh, Chevrolets and DeSoto's very quickly but what happens is in, in the aftermath of World War II is that the Congress is becoming far more conservative the longer FDR goes on. So by the late 30s, the New Deal impetus and the New Deal programs are not only not being implemented further, uh, but that they're being shut down. The Democratic Congress in the last years of, of Roosevelt and the first years of Truman are cutting back marginal tax rates. And then the Republicans come in in 1946. And this is a into Congress. This is an important point uh, in terms of such speculation. People really don't like wars. They don't like wars even if they're successful and they don't like the people who brung them to that dance or who who oversee their war efforts. So that a couple years after LBJ wins his 1964 landslide, the Republicans have big gains in Congress. You see the pushback against both Bushes politically, father and son. You see the pushback against the Democrats in 1920, having led America to a very successful war. And, of course, in 1945, you see Winston Churchill thrown out of office by the British. So, Roosevelt probably would have had to deal with a Republican and a very, very conservative Congress in 1947 48, if he lives, he would not have been able to implement the sort of program that he would have wanted to.
4: I'm going to disagree with you slightly there, uh, David. Um, you, oh, said, you said that people don't like wars. Surely, that the turning point in terms of um, a Western perspective on war is arguably is world war ii because if you look at uh, the outbreak of world war one whether it was germany or london people were absolutely enthusiastic yeah for war.
6: I, I i think i should clarify that i think after they get into it they determine they don't like it because we we, we take a look at those uh, newsreels mm-hmm. of the uh, German people in particular, but all throughout Western, or all all throughout Europe, where people are going to war enthusiastically. Now, that's less the case in Mm.
4: 1939.
6: (laughs) There are accounts of of people marching off to war in Germany, and the German people, and I think they've, they've done some sampling of opinion, even the Nazis, where people... In Germany, were very wary of what this was going to be about. It's only until they overrun France and the Low Countries, and it looks like well, that turned out well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that the enthusiasm levels uh, ramp up uh, in Germany, but up to that point, they were you know they had seen so many dead that they were very nervous about mm-hmm. the whole thing as well. And I- even Stalin is. You know, he's he's willing to go in for these little wars or occupations with the Baltics and Poland. But, um, you know, he doesn't take on the big guys on his own. Very true. Um, it's interesting, again, from a,
4: a British perspective, uh, somebody who's always been a student of history. Uh, Britain goes to war in 1939 uh, with an empire and automatically... Australia, New Zealand and Canada declare war as well. And we come out of that war six years later, a small country where we're absolutely bankrupt. On paper, we still have an empire, but this haste, but uh, the war hastens the empire's end. But what the war does from a British perspective is actually to galvanise and to create um, a small Britain, a nation state, Britain, and the fulcrum of that identity is very much the Blitz and the fact that we are this small country, and for some 18 months we we faced off uh, the the worst tyranny that the world had ever known. So it's interesting. Did, did Britain go to war gladly? Absolutely not. But that war-fighting generation takes great pride in actually the fact that. Uh, in, in, in their service and also the creation of a new Britain one which has welfare safety nets the National Health Service is one of the great things actually to come out of that experience and moving this slightly on to, to America it appears to me that the big difference in terms of um, World War I and the post uh the post-depression that the united states suffers then as opposed to world war ii is surely that there were no europe had been decimated so there was a massive demand literally whatever the americans did post world war ii there's going to be a massive demand for goods and really this is all about uh, the marshall plan isn't it that you gave europe the money uh, not only to rebuild itself, but also to purchase American goods, and that's what fuels this economic boom, which lasted all the way to the to the early 1970s. And that's what didn't happen in World War One, because Britain, France, uh, just were not devastated, and even Germany were, wasn't as devastated as it was um, in 1919, as opposed to uh, it was in 1945.
6: Yes, certainly, Berlin isn't blown to bits in 1918, uh, nor London, really, despite dirigible attacks. uh, um, And and northern France is northern, it's the devastation uh, is the physical devastation of the territory is pretty much limited to northern France in World War. Mm. So there's this huge, huge difference uh, at least in Western Europe. I mean, in Eastern Europe, I mean everything is is a mess. Or in the old Russian Empire, um, and of course the economic dislocations caused by the by the fall of the Austrian Empire. But yes, that's that's a massive difference. But also, there's a there's a galloping of technology which we're still seeing today, and it's probably accelerated. Where we could make all sorts of mistakes uh, economically or there could be this problem here or there but we are just inventing newer, better things uh, ways to do things um, all the time and the depression and I think the war itself short circuits where this economic Technological boom is going to come from, but that it takes off in the 50s and 60s, and right now the whole electronic thing, which which causes us to not have to stockpile things or go to stores or to allocate resources, uh, you know, a hundred times better than they were before, or not have to invest in an army of secretaries with gallons of white out to get a simple memo out anymore and as much as this creates dislocations in manufacturing jobs or clerical jobs it just makes life easier for everyone and brings the costs of everything everything down and and i i, I think all the go even going back into that progressive era is um, it's it's the technology, not the politics. Reading that book I was uh, telling you about earlier, the uh, book about Manhattan in the 1890s and 1910, reading about the people living in those lousy tenements on the Lower East Side and what they had to go through and, and how things were made in the sweatshops and, and all that, it's it's once we evolved the the technology and not the politics or the labor laws or anything else which which enables people to live better lives i mean certainly uh that's that's the key uh, and and in some of those mills <laughs> i have some memories of of how they how they operated uh in, in my own life there it was a it was a pretty primitive uh way to go, as opposed to all the automation and uh, e-this and e-that of today.
3: Mr. Mr. Chief Justice, my friends, this is a day of national consecration, and I am certain that on this day, my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure, will revive, And will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
6: The nation demands action. In 1933, it needs action.
3: I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. Broad executive power. To wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign force
4: another reading that I got david from from our show together was uh, first off, just so the listeners are, are, are clear i 'm somebody who is politically left of center if that hadn 't been made uh, abundantly clear. And um, I appreciate that someone who's politically left of centre in Britain, it means one thing. And in America, uh, it means that I'm probably further over to the left because your centre of political gravity is somewhat to the right of everybody in in Western Europe. So I hold that one, I hold that up there just so people know exactly where I'm coming from. One of my readings actually of um, your graphic and detailed description of... The New Deal and the, you know, the second round of New Deals and the, uh, the mini depression of the late 1930s after the, the Great Depression, was if you look at um, a government taking control and command of the economy as the United States did in World War II, that actually um, the New Deal wasn't enough. That actually, if uh, you could take, you know, one reading of this is that if FDR had had the, uh, the foresight and the vision to absolutely take control, almost Soviet style, of the United States' economy, that um, the New Deal would have been an absolute qualified success. It was a su- success in terms of PR, and it was a marginal success in terms of getting um, those top-line figures of unemployment down. But as you um, explain, looked over the, what, six, well, no, uh, you're American, so the nine years between him coming into power, uh, or eight years of him coming into power, and then America going to war, uh, the unemployment figures came down by what, maybe 8% from a high of 24, 25%. You know, so it wasn't. Uh, it, the, it
6: doesn't get, I think, any lower than 14 or 14 mm, is the average. It's, yeah. It's, it's very high. And, of course, how much of that is brought down by you might have a million people doing, oh, what would be called inhospitably or uncharitably make work jobs, mm. you know, whether it would be. I mean, they could be valuable and a lot of the work they did uh, endures. That's that's one of the uh, things that people see very favorably mm. about the New Deal is that it created solid Tangible uh, works, whether it was uh, a post office or a bridge, what we call infrastructure today, yeah. or sending people out into the woods to uh, uh, clear up uh, brush or, 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 or tidy up national parks. But I if you if you take that million people out, then yeah. the uh, unemployment rate is even higher.
4: Well, one of the enduring. Icon iconic images of America is the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was only after doing this show that it occurred to me whilst doing the research that that is an infrastructure project from the New Deal.
6: Right. Uh, of course, some of our iconic uh, projects, you know, precede that. Um, in uh, the George Washington Bridge, mm-hmm. uh, connecting northern New Jersey and northern Manhattan, which is which is the V. The only bridge really connecting uh, Manhattan to Jersey is uh, was done uh, under Hoover, and there's an interesting story where a, a, a real demagogic fellow from North Carolina uh, alludes to this bridge when he's talking about uh, uh, Herbert Hoover. I'm digressing now, but I, I want to haul this one out. He says in New York City they uh, built a bridge and they named it after Hoover. Uh, Because uh, it was uh, it's wet on the bottom, meaning for prohibition, dry on the top, and it goes both ways.
4: (laughs) That's a brilliant quote. That's a brilliant quote.
6: But that that guy was a real that that guy was a real screwball. He's elected in 1932 in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and what he would do is he would play the populist uh, card, where his opponent, his Democratic opponent, the incumbent. He would uh, read from a menu where the guy lived in Washington at the, res- at the hotel and, and, and talk about how he ordered caviar for breakfast and had to dress in tuxedos to go to lunch. And it was real, out Huey Long, Huey Long. Uh, and, and the bad news is that this guy became a serious anti-Semite, uh, even working with known, uh, uh, known fascists in the Senate. So it really, uh, you see that uh, some of these populist movements have very bad byproducts to them.
4: Moving swiftly on, uh, i tell you, a lot of the listener questions are kind of uh, obsessed with comparisons with uh, Woodrow Wilson and uh, Craig Beck back in Sydney, Australia. And he says Woodrow Wilson in the big three meeting was considered the optimist amongst Lloyd George who was the realist and George Clemenceau who was the pessimist what was FDR's stance on what happened at Versailles and Wilson's position on it
6: well in terms of of at Versailles we really don't know and we we do have a we are a witness or we have some information about Roosevelt coming back with uh, Wilson to America after Versailles, or maybe during Versailles, I'm not quite sure which, and Roosevelt was trying to get some information from Wilson as to what was going on, and Wilson was extremely standoffish about the whole thing, whether it was uh, about just dealing with Franklin Roosevelt, who heated. The relationship between the two, when well, we might as well get into this, since so many of the questions involve Franklin Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and comparing them, even though Franklin Roosevelt is an early supporter of Woodrow Wilson for the presidency and supports uh, him before the primaries and the convention, organizes upstate forum, and gets rewarded uh, by the Woodrow Wilson administration with this post that he dearly wants Under Secretary of the Navy which Theodore Roosevelt had had before him and which helps catapult him to the presidency uh, FDR attempts to gain Wilson's support for a Senate run in 1914 and he doesn't get it uh, and then he uh, He's thinking about running for governor in 1918 of New York. And he makes some crack to Wilson about, well, you know, are people going to support Al Smith, who's a Catholic? And Wilson, you know, is, is incensed by this remark. He says, well, there's plenty of good Catholics dying in France for this country right now. So button that up, pal. Also, that Wilson, or Roosevelt is undercutting. Uh, the Wilson administration on the preparedness issue before the war. Uh, You have all these issues, and and it even goes to the fact that Wilson is incensed at Roosevelt for entertaining someone from the British administration or the British embassy who had been spreading jokes about Wilson's uh, second marriage. So it's not a healthy relationship between the two. Uh, that having been said, Wilson is so secretive uh, during these uh, Versailles negotiations. You know, he talks about in the 14 co- uh, points, open covenants, openly agreed at. And he doesn't even allow anyone from the uh, American delegation to sit in with him uh uh, when he's with the big three, Clemenceau and Lloyd George. So it's, it's a remarkable situation. Roosevelt, I think lean, learns from that. Uh, but they, they they have very different styles, even though in some ways they, they are pursuing the same goals in many ways, the same goals.
3: As the blow comes the jap assassins bombs bring to america the grim reality of war war as the axis wages it democracy stunned moves into action president Roosevelt, grim and determined goes before congress with a united nation behind him demanding vengeance mr. vice president mr speaker members of the senate of the house of representatives Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy.
4: Now we're going to go back to Stephen Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast in Buffalo, New York for his second question.
1: I have a question about Roosevelt's earlier career in the New York State Senate. It seems like he straddled the line between... Upstate New York politics and the Tammany Hall bossism. Did that influence how he made political decisions in his life and especially in his later career? What lessons did he learn? Did he pick up trusted followers from both camps? And how did that generally affect the way that he governed? It seems to me like he was pragmatic and he often listened to a lot of his advisors. Did he learn those lessons? as an upstate New York state senator. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate all the hard work you've done on this project. Uh, that's a, a great question from Stephen. And can I
4: also just say, as a, a great advert for the 10 American Presidents podcast group um, is that um, you can um, join with other people that love to listen to the show. And uh, Stephen's daughter did a rather brilliant picture, David, are Franklin Delano Roosevelt a picture of him uh, just after his state senate run which Stephen posted to uh, to the Facebook group I, I, it's very much an interpretive impression of, of Roosevelt uh, but, but it's there on the 10 American Presidents Facebook group and uh, and I'd like to thank Stephen for posting that and his little daughter for drawing also So, uh, but moving swiftly on um, to answer Stephen's question David what's your answer?
6: We talk about people now being bi-coastal, you know, being on the west coast and the east coast. And Franklin Roosevelt, when when Stephen says straddle uh, between Tammany and East, straddling things geographically as well. He sees himself largely as that Hyde Park upstate guy and upstate the Hudson Valley is far more rural uh, back then than it is now. But he's also uh, has a home Uh, on the Upper East Side on East 65th Street. Uh, He had lived earlier in Midtown, and he has uh, business connections and a job uh, in Lower Manhattan. So he he knows both areas, you know, very well. When he gets to the state Senate, it's as an upstate reform, non-Tammany, anti-Tammany guy. He's he's immediately thrown into this situation where he's bucking Tammany Hall on um, who they will put in for the United States Senate seat, which the legislature can vote on at that point. And he eventually sort of cuts a deal with Tammany where they withdraw their original nominee, but then they nominate, you know, someone equally um, as... Uh, acceptable to them but he gets to declare victory so in a way he he learns to trim his sails on that early on he does fight them again in that 1914 senate race that he wants to do they put up a candidate James W. Gerard who was Wilson's ambassador to Berlin and they crush him and from that point on he does not attack them directly And so he learns that lesson uh, quite well. In the Senate, he does learn something else about Tammany. And in the legislature, in Albany, is where he meets Alfred Emanuel Smith, who, unlike Roosevelt, who is a, a newcomer and sort of a backbencher, but a very highly visible one in the state Senate, Al Smith is a big shot and a very respected figure in the state assembly. And these guys first meet each other there and at least take a, a liking and in some ways to each other. And it's probably that basis which causes Smith to turn to Roosevelt early on. We also see that they meet during the 1920 Democratic Convention but which causes Smith to turn to Roosevelt to nominate him at Madison Square Garden in 1924, where Roosevelt gives that happy warrior speech. And that's what resurrects Roosevelt from polio and defeat in 1920 in that presidential election when Roosevelt is running for vice president and really gives him the boost up to where Smith a Tammany guy reaches out to Roosevelt in 1928 and helps install him into the governorship. No governorship, no White House. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States.
3: My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment the troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith, they will need thy blessings. Their role will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the
4: righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. And to end up. Brant Malone
3: they will be pride
4: says pride. when did the re-examination of Roosevelt as president occur David mentioned at the end of the podcast that people have re-evaluated the Roosevelt presidency but in what ways has this re-evaluation been more positive than before and what ways has it been more negative
6: well you're seeing a few more studies about whether the economics of it worked but I, I, I think we're also less close to the whole era. There are people who are, were not there and who not, did not see Roosevelt as their personal president, their friend. We we know you, we see the uh, documentaries where people would write to Roosevelt, millions of people, I don't know if millions, but hundreds of thousands of people would write to him as their friend, asking for a favor. Um, and, and this close personal relationship And the earlier the New Deal historians could put out uh, the facts about Roosevelt, but perhaps not, would perhaps gloss over them quicker. Um, And now we see more about the Roosevelt style, which could often be very duplicitous. And I I, I think people are, are more comfortable with that, with looking at that and not seeing this as as a complete uh, junking of admiration for Roosevelt. So I would say that it's not that his reputation has been downgraded. I think it's less looking at him uh, with, with blinders. Also, it seemed to me about 10 years ago that when people looked at the three Roosevelt's, and there was actually a book out of maybe five years ago now called The Three Roosevelt by James James McGregor Burns that the reputation or not the reputation but the interest in them seems to vary as time goes on and Roosevelt was Franklin Roosevelt was the big dog for decades and decades but then what had happened is we're still riding a big Theodore Roosevelt boom ...where you see so many books about Roosevelt... ...and there's just this fantastic fascination with him... ...but also, up to about ten years ago... ...you also saw a big... ...as, as feminism and issues like that increase... ...a tremendous greater increase in interest in Eleanor... ...and Franklin, who had been, you know, the big guy... ...had, had almost receded into third place... But now you see him rising up again in public interest. And I think that is because of the poor economy and how you deal with a poor economy, how you deal with a Great re- Depression or how you deal with a Great Recession.
4: I think it's a little bit more simpler than that. And this is uh, somebody, again, is a, a student of history and, um, What I always seem to notice is that at the end of someone's tenure, whether they're a king or president of an emperor, if they've died on a relative high, at some point there's historical revisionism. And if they've ended their tenure on a relative low, ditto. And the revisionism works in in the opposite direction. So, if you look at uh, this from an American perspective, somebody like um, President Grant historically has been uh, a failure, but there is a revisionist out there, uh, or revisionists, and they're saying, "But actually, but he's a proto civil rights uh, precursor. He was a friend of African Americans, etc." You have. And then a, a very dramatic example in the other way, somebody like uh, President Jackson, who has r- rode a relative high wave of uh, support until relative recently, where revisionists have now looked at him and said, but well, actually, but um, he was a slave owning bastard who um, trampled on the rights of Native Americans and et cetera, et cetera. So- and Jefferson. Yes, and absolutely, and Jefferson would be the classic example and, of that, and, and
6: not just because of the slaveholding thing. People are really down on him on a on a lot of uh, ways, which which certainly plays havoc with the old Democratic Party custom of holding Jefferson, Jackson. Day dinner. Absolutely, <laughs> haven't, haven't heard of those in a while, <laughs> and and the and it goes the other way with uh, Truman and uh, Truman first, and then Eisenhower. Mm. Um, Uh, being ratcheted upwards the guy where uh this does not and reagan reagan uh going upwards and Mm -hmm. i think even uh the first bush though not the second uh but the guy where where this is not working for is is lyndon johnson yes he he's stymied by by vietnam Right. Ni- neither, neither ideology, neither wing of American thought is comfortable with him. Mm. Which
4: I, I think is somewhat harsh, considering that um, he took some very brave decisions to do with civil rights and actually um, did literally knock heads together and work the American political system. But, you no, know, when you look at the optics of his tenure... Um, it's it's fundamentally it's Vietnam and LBJ LBJ. How many kids did
6: he kill today? Right, and it, and just his personal style, which uh, people overlooked in 1964, mm-hmm. uh, but which just doesn't fly. Absolutely, um, David. This has been
4: fascinating. Um, we're going to work again together, yes. aren't we?
6: Yes.
4: So we're going to do we're going to do Tr. Yes. And we are also going to do a new podcast. Um, what's that new podcast?
6: Well, I think it's uh, 10 or 11 or <laughs> some number of presidential elections.
4: Well, I'm definitely looking forward to working with you on that because I actually found your analysis of uh, 1920, 1932, etc. You know, just absolutely brilliant and um it's uh they'll be somewhat wasted if we just shoehorn them into um the FDR show and then kinda of forgot about them. That there's so much uh, more that we can learn about the American political system and how it's developed through looking at its elections and one thing I definitely want to tackle with you is the um, the crossing over of the Republican Democratic parties but we'll do that in that series that's going to be ten American elections which uh, we'll try and maybe get the first one out later on this month Um oh, uh- <laughs> uh, well, I've got to keep you busy. Got to keep okay. you busy. Um, listen, thank you again, David, for be, for just an amazing FDR show. And the feedback, whether it's been on Twitter or on Facebook or via email to me, has been absolutely tremendous. So, so thank you again. Now, if you do want to contact uh, me, I am at Royfield on Twitter. So that's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Or you can um, tweet the show where we are at the number 10 USAP. Of course, there is the 10 American President's website, which is the number 10, again, USP.com, where you can have a look at the shows and maybe write a comment or two. But uh you, dear listener, um, I need your help. I need your help to go on iTunes to write reviews about the show. And please five-star it. I'm not saying that these shows are perfect, but um, I've done, I've put the work in and my back into it. So please go on to iTunes, write a review, because that then that means that other listeners uh, throughout the world uh, will see the show and then hopefully listen to it too. So please, iTunes reviews are vitally important. You can send me an email where I'm Royfield. Again, that's R-O-I for India, F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. And I'll try and get back to you in a timely manner. So um, that's just about it on FDR. Um, But don't forget, we do have the Facebook group. We can go on to Facebook and join the group. The next show I'm going to do is going to be um, a little bit of a one-off with uh, Kevin Stroud of The History of English looking at the accents of early American uh, 20th century presidents, because that's one thing that definitely came out of the FDR show, was his mid-Atlantic or transatlantic accent. So look out for that show in the next month or two, and then after that uh, we'll be uh, delving into the life of President Andrew Jackson. So that's all from me. Uh, David, would you like to sign off as well? I'm signing off. That's all from us. Take care, guys. See you all next time. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and
2: discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes
0: American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy.
5: The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast.
4: Mid-Atlantic.
5: When diplomacy fails. Thousand and one conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The
0: secret cabinet from Germany. Ten American presidents. The History of Germany podcast.
4: The Listen to Agora Today.
7: It's the story of a cultural superpower that danced and sprinted its way to success. It brought the world reggae, Colin Powell, Hip Hop, Bob Marley, and much more. Its story is told to you in full colour for your podcasting ears. It's the story of how Jamaica conquered the world. Search for it on iTunes. How Jamaica conquered the world. It's probably the best, least known podcast in podcast, dumb. Search for it today.
4: Hey guys, my name is Zach Twomley, and I run the podcast When Diplomacy Fails. When Diplomacy Fails is a history podcast that looks at the build-up
0: to, break-out of, and consequences of various wars in history. Now, you might be thinking, a lot of podcasts cover a lot of wars in history. What makes
4: When Diplomacy Fails so different? Well, that's a good question. From the very beginning, I wanted to have a different take based on my own interests. I didn't want to cover why Army A moved. To or why this battle took place in this place or why this technology was so important. I prefer to look at the whole human agency aspect of it, the diplomatic
0: part of it, the reasons why war was necessary and peace simply could not be preserved. If you find yourself interested in such issues and you want to know why wars
5: really happened, you should check out When Diplomacy Fails. I would like to claim some deep, intelligent reason why you should listen to the history of England and indeed to the history of Anglo-Saxon England to show you that my podcast will give you that flash of insight that makes you a better person, stronger, kinder, more insightful and indeed an endlessly attractive turn on to everyone you meet. Sadly you can't do that because it'd be a whopper but the history of England is a fantastically fun story with all the colours of life the creation of a nation, the lives of ordinary folk across the ages, how Aristotle's view affected the lives of medieval women, why people have ginger hair, endlessly nasty and gory deaths, of course, intrigue, politics and sex. It's a cornucopia, a rainbow of love and laughter. I love it to bits, and my mum does too, so I strongly advise you, in a deeply objective way, to give it a whirl.
0: Ten American Presidents is a podcast focused on delving deeper into the lives of some of the presidents who became the most influential in United States history, for better or for worse. Each episode provides a rich background of the man in America at the time and how the mixture of both affected each president's decisions and legacy. I'm Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow. Together we host the Bohemian Podcast, a look at the tiny country of the Czech Republic that has played a big role in history. We talk about what it's like living in this historic capital of Bohemia, Prague, and take you through its incredibly fascinating history and how a tiny Slavic country managed to stay intact for a millennia while being surrounded by far larger neighbors. We also host the History of Alchemy podcast, a podcast about where the history of science meets the history of the occult and gets all wobbly. We cover all sorts of ideas around
6: alchemy that have influenced alchemy in its 1,400-year history and how it changed and evolved over time until we finally get to the modern science that we know and love. We take an in-depth look at specific alchemists, what they did, join us for the
0: history of magic, divination, esotericism, but also the sciences of astronomy, mathematics, optics, and chemistry. I also translate The Secret Cabinet from German. It's done by a historian who goes by The Budla and who has a bit of a sick sense of humor. We talk about all those fascinating stories and artifacts of history that were hidden from the more sensitive folks in the past. And finally, I also host the History of Germany
1: podcast like The Secret Cabinet. It's both in English and German. And having lived in Germany for 10 years, I hope to provide a bit of a local insight into Germany's history, starting from the very beginning. And remember not to miss out on our videos.
0: Hi there. My name's Tom Daly, and I'd like to tell you about my podcast, American Biography. American Biography isn't just a chronological retelling of the history of the United States, but rather, it's an exploration of the human side of American history. I'm not interested in retreading the lives of the same old big names in the American pantheon, but instead, I want to look at judges, congressmen, cabinet members, civic leaders, or diplomats, who, though less well-known, nonetheless significantly impacted the nation's evolutionary trajectory. In American biography, I want to underscore the private lives of these public people to study their hopes and fears, their flaws and foibles, their brilliance, and their boneheadedness in order to achieve a more complete and relatable picture of the United States development. On American Biography, I want to tell the American story through Americans' stories. So please join me, and together, we'll learn more about the important people we don't know enough about.
1: Hi, I'm Steve and I'm host and producer of A to Z History Presents The History of the Papacy. This is a podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. The History of the Papacy podcast is an interactive show where you will be joining our tour group that will visit all the usual interesting points in papal and Christian history. We will also step over the ropes and look at events and occurrences that don't normally come up in the official tour. From the early 1st century onward, the history of the Popes of Rome and the Christian Church has made up a huge part of the history of the Western world. We will discover many interesting facts about the history of the Popes of Rome, the Christian Church, and how this all fits into the larger narrative of world history. This podcast will be more than just a recounting of facts and biographies. We will lay out the narrative in the main episodes of the podcast but we will also have sidetrack episodes. This is where we will lift the curtain and go in-depth about tons of interesting facts and stories of church history. You will also hear expert interviews and guest hosts who will bring in other perspectives on the issues we discuss. If you want to learn more how Christianity was formed and transformed throughout the ages, I encourage you to give the show a try. Thank you, and I look forward to talking with you soon.
2: Um, my name is Kate. My name's Jo. My name's Nicola.
3: My name is Suzanne Me.
2: My name is Mary Parkinson.
7: I'm in Hope House as a client. Um, I have had addiction issues um, at Hope my
2: House, life. Um, um, including an in eating disorder. Heroin, crack, um, Addiction to drugs. Methadone. Alcohol. I'm here because it got really bad. At long last, 1001 Conversations is available to download from iTunes and all good podcatchers. This was a place where women worked to help other women.
1: Listen to Agora Today.
0: Mr.
3: Pop, <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
6: Four score and seven years ago, when in the course of human events.
3: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black American.
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Asian
3: America, there's the United States of America.